1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. There's a, a sad moment here, more than a moment. Representative Elijah Cummings has passed away. He was born just five months before I was. I mean, you know, we're the same age. And this was a man who modeled integrity, who modeled service. He lived in his district, went home to his district every night, who modeled Fearlessness as chairman of the House Oversight Committee, taking on Donald Trump and doing it just like a a statesman. So we'll we'll circle back around to that. I want to get into the Supreme Court uh, because there is, I mean there's just like so much happening at this level. One of the circuit courts, I believe it was on September 23rd, and I think it was the Third Circuit, recently struck down ownership rules of radio stations some of the ownership rules, making it easier for billionaires to buy lots and lots of radio stations and put lots and lots of right-wing programming on them. I'm guessing probably a Trump judge. But it's just one example of, I mean, how basically the courts are running everything in this country. And so my question, I'll lay out the question first, then I'm going to lay out the argument, is How do we best reform the Supreme Court? Now, then comes the question, you know, why do we need to reform the Supreme Court? And there's a really fundamental question here. And that is, do we live in and want to continue living in either a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic or a constitutionally limited monarchy? A semi-democratic monarchy now in a monarchy you've got somebody who is not elected by the people who is not answerable to the people typically the consequence of accidents of birth right the son of the previous king or the daughter if there are no sons as in the case of the Queen of England right now or if a son decides to you know step out of the line of secession or whatever I mean there's all these variations but basically somebody who's not elected to office who has final say on everything who can you know shoot down laws who can who can you know dissolve parliament things like that who can decide who the leaders of the country are going to be that's a monarchy and that's a role that the supreme court filled in 2000 when they decided that george w bush would be the guy who would be in the white house That's the role that the Supreme Court fills almost, with almost every decision now, striking down, upholding, modifying, or rewriting laws in case after case after case. And this is a process called judicial review, using your interpretation or understanding of the Constitution to decide if you're going to allow a particular law which has been passed by Congress and signed by the president to stand. And there is arguably nowhere in the Constitution where the Supreme Court has given this power. It just doesn't happen. It's just not there. I mean, in the early days when the whole issue was being debated, what are we going to have here? How is this going to be done? The Constitution was written in 1787. In 1788, Madison and Hamilton published this long series of newspaper articles to basically sell the Constitution. And uh, I'm reading, this is from page 16 in my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court. This is from the chapter, The Hidden History of Judicial Review. May 28, 1788, Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists, quote, the problem was people were worried that the court, the Supreme Court, would end up being a monarchical branch of government that they would end up being basically in charge of everything and he says the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power it can never attack with success either of the other two branches well clearly that's no longer the case he's quoting montesquieu he says of the three powers above mentioned the judiciary is next to nothing He said from the, this is Federalist 78, from the natural feebleness of the judiciary, it is in continual jeopardy of being overpowered, awed, or influenced by its coordinate branches. But then again, these voices, particularly people like George Mason, kept coming up and saying, and Patrick Henry, saying what would prevent the Supreme Court from rising up and taking over the country? And so in June of 1788, in Federalist 81, Alexander Hamilton addresses that. And he says, you know, the argument, or rather suggestions, upon which this charge is founded, in other words, the things that, like Patrick Henry was saying, the Supreme Court's going to be too powerful, are to this effect, that the authority of the proposed Supreme Court of the United States will be superior to that of the legislature. The power of construing the laws according to the SPIRIT, and he has the word SPIRIT, all caps, of the Constitution will enable the court to mold those laws into whatever shape it may think proper. And then, You know, so he's quoting basically the argument against the Constitution, against the Supreme Court, and he says this is as unprecedented as it is dangerous. And then he goes on to speak right to it. He says, in the first place, there is not a syllable in this proposed Constitution, he says, in the plan under consideration, in the proposed Constitution, which directly, the word directly in all caps, empowers the national courts to construe the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution, or which gives them any greater latitude in this respect than may be claimed by the courts of every state. And, you know, he goes on from there. And and in fact, I could read a dozen more, but I'm I'm not going to. So what happened? Well, up until 1803, the Supreme Court basically was the final court of appeals. They were a primary court for disputes between the states and stuff like that. But their principal function was being the, the place where the buck stops. But in 1803, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, john marshall who was thomas jefferson's third cousin and bitter political enemy which is why john adams made him chief justice of the supreme court on his last day in office in march of 1800 as he was having to turn over the reins of power to thomas jefferson because adams lost the election and vice president jefferson became president jefferson so two years later jefferson's third cousin and hated political enemy john marshall strikes down part of the judiciary act of 1789 And by striking down a law passed by Congress and signed by the president, asserts that he, as chief justice and the Supreme Court, have a superior power to that of the White House, the presidency, and and Congress. And Jefferson went nuts. He said, if this decision stands, the Constitution has become a suicide pact. Under this construction, the the, the, the court has now a despotic branch of, of government. He wrote to Abigail Adams, he said, uh, who was a friend of his at the time, uh, even though he wasn't talking to her husband, he wrote to her and he said, under this, the Constitution has become a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary. So, I mean, Marshall got his fingers burned. He didn't do this again for the rest of his career in a big way no more judicial review. The next time it happened, the second time it happened in a really consequential way, was in 1856 when Chief Justice Roger Taney thought, I'll solve the slavery problem once and for all. And in a decision called Dred Scott v. Sanford, ruled that the federal laws that allowed for free states versus slave states were irrelevant, and that all over the entire United States, people of color had no rights. They were property. And that led us right to the Civil War. So those were the two times in the first basically 80 years of the history of the United States that the Supreme Court did this. Now the Supreme Court does it every session. They're doing it with the vast majority of all of their decisions. They started this process in the 1870s when the court was being bribed by the big railroad barons. And li- I say that literally bribed. I wrote a book about this called Unequal Protection. We've got the letters from Jay Gould, the railroad baron, to Stephen J. Field, the Supreme Court Justice from the Ninth Circuit of California you know, saying that he would sponsor him to run for president if he would rule in his way with regard to corporate personhood and all this stuff. So the court started being bought off in the 1870s, 1880s, and that's when they started doing this all the time. And now we've got a court that has been packed by Mitch McConnell and a series of Republican presidents committing treason to get into the White House, and that treason being accepted and embraced by right-wing think tanks and billionaires because they knew it would get them their people on the court. So how do we change the court? How do we fix the court now that this corruption has happened? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And how do we even begin the discussion with the American people about whether we want to live in a constitutional democracy or a monarchy? Tom Harbin here with you. So just a little bit more of this where Alexander Hamilton is going on and on and on. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. So the Supreme Court is the place where all those kind of things start. Disputes among the states, disputes between a state and the federal government, disputes between the federal government and other governments, and certain kinds of maritime law. In all other cases, in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, in other words, the final court of appeal, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions, and the word exceptions is capitalized in the Constitution, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. So, you know, Congress has the ability to say, no, wait a minute, Supreme Court. You can't do that. That's the exceptions. You can't rule on this. And with regard to regulations, to say, okay, you know, we got nine people on the court right now. Uh, Let's go to 10. Let's go to 12. Let's go to 15. Things like that. I'll go through some of the things that we can do with the court in just a minute. But just back to Hamilton, He says, we have seen that the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court would be confined to two classes of causes, and those of a nature to occur rarely, that's arguments between the states and treaties with other nations. In all other cases of federal cognizance, the original jurisdiction would appertain to the inferior tribunals, in other words, everything has to start with a lower court, and the Supreme Court would have nothing more than, now keep in mind, this is Alexander Hamilton selling the Constitution in Federalist number 81. And the Supreme Court would have nothing more than appellate jurisdiction, quote, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make, end quote. And then in the next sentence, Hamilton, you know, essentially repeats himself and says, you know, let me just double down on this. To avoid all inconveniences, it will be safest to declare generally "...that the Supreme Court shall possess appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact, and that this jurisdiction shall be subject to such exceptions and regulations as the national legislature may prescribe. This will enable the rest of government to modify it in such a manner that it will best answer the ends of public justice and security." In Federalist Number 78, he says, "...nor does this conclusion by any means suppose a superiority of the judicial to the legislative power." It only supposes that the power of the people is superior to both, and that where the will of the legislature declared in its statutes stands in opposition to that of the people declared in the Constitution, the judges ought to be governed by the latter rather than the former. And in other words, our elected officials should be the ones making the decisions about what is and what isn't constitutional. I'll pick up this line of thought in just a moment. Talk media for the sane among us. Any lawyers out there want to argue judicial review with me? I'm ready. We'll be right back. You know, I'm a big fan of natural medicine and not a big fan of surgeries, especially because cosmetic procedures wouldn't even consider it. Um, But you know, decades of hard work and long life have left their mark on my face and others. And uh, It's amazing to find a product that not only works but also is non-invasive. I'm talking about Plexiderm. It's derived from shale rock and visibly reduces under-eye bags, wrinkles, and crow's feet in minutes. No knives, no needles, only naturally derived ingredients. You really need to check this out. Um, I tried it. I Boy, it made me look younger. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it unless you tell them. And the effects last for hours. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code Tom, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Don't be a victim of your skin any longer. Visit tryplexiderm.com and use the code Tom, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's tryplexiderm.com. Call 800-685-1292. So people say to me, well, you know, Tom, if, if the Supreme Court isn't, doesn't have the final say in, in what is and what isn't constitutional, who does? You know, one of his colleagues, I think it was George Mason, I don't, I don't recall specifically, wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson essentially saying just this. And by the way, this is super relevant for right now, We are facing a constitutional crisis right this minute, a number of them actually, and the Supreme Court is going to end up having final say in a lot of these things, including all these laws. You know, they tore apart Obamacare, they tore apart the Civil Rights Act. Who gave them that authority? They took it themselves. In my opinion, the Constitution does not give them that authority. So people say, well, what if Congress and the president passed a law saying, if you say something disrespectful to Donald Trump, you go to jail? That's unconstitutional, isn't it? Wouldn't you want the court to prevent that from happening? And my answer is, hey, that's already happened. In 1798, John Adams was president, Jefferson was vice president. Adams got passed the Alien and Sedition Act, which said that it was a crime to quote, bring the president into disrepute, end quote. And on the day that John Adams signed that law, Thomas Jefferson, by the way, left town that day, and that was the last time he ever talked to John Adams in any consequential way. That was the end of their relationship until much later in their lives. And Adams, the first thing Adams did was he had Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, arrested and thrown in prison, his newspaper taken away from him and shut down, his home taken away from him, for writing an op-ed in which he said that President Adams was old, toothless, querulous, an old word that means cranky, and balding. Adams shut down 20 different newspapers. Did the Supreme Court say, wait a minute, John Adams, that's unconstitutional? No, the people did. And this is what, you know, when Mason wrote this letter to to Jefferson and said, okay, if the Supreme Court isn't the arbiter of what's constitutional, who is? Jefferson said the people themselves, which is the title of a book by Larry Kramer, the former dean of, of the Stanford Law School, which is a critique of judicial review. And it's absolutely brilliant. If you're an attorney or you're into this kind of stuff, it's a great book to read. Although I think I've written a pretty good one too here. And that's what happened in the election of 1800. People were so horrified by the fact that John Adams was throwing people into prison for 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 disagreeing with him. Literally, the town drunk in in Newark, New Jersey, Luther Baldwin made a comment to a bartender about John Adams and he got thrown in prison for it. Matthew Lyon, the congressman from from Vermont, got, got you know, Adams threw him into prison. And what happened in the election of 1800, the people rose up and they swept out the Federalists and replaced the House, the Senate and the White House all came under the control of the Democratic Party. It was then called the Democratic Republican Party. The people themselves. And people say, well, that was back then. What about now? Well, you know, Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, passed a very similar law and started putting people like me in prison who were saying we should not go into World War I. Literally, President Wilson was imprisoning people for speaking out against World War One, And it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, oh, that's fine. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt put Japanese in internment camps. The Karamatsu decision went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, oh, we're good with that. The Supreme Court is not your savior. People say, well, what about Brown v. Board? In Brown v. Board, the Supreme Court was only reversing their own decision in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1898. They were undoing their own damage. So what do we do? So what do we do with a Supreme Court that is out of control? Franklin Roosevelt faced this. Actually, the country faced the possibility of this after Lincoln was assassinated, in fact. Let's just go back. One of the ways there's, there's two things in the Constitution, uh, Article 3, Section 2, about what you could do with the court. One is you can regulate it, the other is you can you can create exceptions to what the Supreme Court may do. So let's take these one at a time. The regulate it part. Typically, the way Congress regulates the Supreme Court is by determining how many members it has. They can Congress can also determine when it meets, where it meets, what its budget is, and can even prescribe rules for it, like ethics rules, which I think would be a really, really good idea. Passing a law that says the Supreme Court has to comply with uh, the Federal Code of Ethics for federal judges. The Supreme Court is exempt from the Federal Court of, uh, Code of Ethics, which is why Thomas and Scalia were able to go to all these Koch brothers events and get paid big Speaking fees and get feeted at at at, you know five star resorts uh, like the hunting retreat where Scalia died, things like that. So you know, yeah, an ethics thing. But when Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson, a slaveholder and Southerner, became president. (laughs) Lincoln's biggest mistake: putting this guy on the ticket with him for his second term. And Congress, which at at the time there were ten members of the Supreme Court, and Congress was so horrified by the possibility that Andrew Johnson might appoint somebody to the Supreme Court, that they immediately met and passed a law reducing the number of members of the court to six, so that up to four people could die before Andrew Johnson would have a chance to put somebody on the court. Andrew Johnson lost the election in 1868. Ulysses Grant became president in 1869 when Congress met. They got together and they said, "Okay, that's it. We're going to take the court back up to nine people, which is where it is right now. So they nakedly, for purely political purposes, changed the number of members of the Supreme Court. Then in 1937, from 33 to 36, the first term of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, Congress kept passing great laws, child labor laws, minimum wage laws, right to unionize laws, just a whole series of really great pieces of legislation. And the Supreme Court was knocking down almost every single one of them. So he wins re-election in 36. He gets re-inaugurated in 37. And the Social Security Act is coming before the Supreme Court. And the word is that they're going to strike it down as unconstitutional. Just like they struck down child labor laws as unconstitutional. Just like they struck down the minimum wage law as unconstitutional. And so Franklin Roosevelt says, you know, I'm going to propose legislation that will say that all of the justices on the court who are over 70 years old, collectively, they'll still be on the court. The Constitution doesn't say you can kick them off the court. Federal judges have their jobs for life. They'll still be on the court, but they will have one vote among them. They will be justices emeritus if they're over 70. And there were five of them on the court at the time who were over 70. And then I will replace the missing four votes by adding four new members to the court. It was called a court packing scheme. If you read the Wikipedias and things of today, everybody says, oh, you know, it so unpopular. FDR took so much flack for that. In actual point of fact, if you read the histories, as I quote my book, that were written in the 1940s, 50s, and, and early 60s by people who were actually there, It was very popular. There was a very good chance that that Franklin Roosevelt would have gotten this through Congress. It had a lot of public support. And the only reason he didn't need to go forward was because Justice Owens and Justice Roberts, in response to public pressure, frankly, changed their votes. They started voting with Franklin Roosevelt. And that put an end to the court packing scheme. And then FDR, you know, replaced, I believe, every single person on the court. Maybe there was one he didn't, but I think he replaced the entire court over the course of his four terms in office. And so you had a relatively moderate court going into the Eisenhower administration and the, and the Kennedy administration as a result of that and then you know nixon committed treason and became president and started packing the court so one thing that we could do is actually change the makeup of the court and and elizabeth warren has suggested this say you know okay we're going to go to 13 justices now and i'm going to be putting some on or we're going to stagger when they go on and when they go off and then we'll move them off the supreme court back into the federal bench which is okay with the constitution and so every president will get to a point one or two or something like that i mean there's these plans to reorganize the court that's one possibility the other is something that a young lawyer was given the job by ronald reagan to figure out back in the early 1980s reagan was swept into power by a supreme court decision in 1976 buckley and then in 1978 first national bank these two decisions opened the floodgates to billionaire and corporate money for federal office and so in 1979 and 1980 gobs of cash flowed into the republican party and made ronald reagan president in addition to cutting a deal with iran to hold the hostages and make jimmy carter look weak and as that money came in reagan you know a couple of reagan's campaign promises were that he was going to reverse Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 decision that said uh, segregation is illegal. He was going to reverse that. And he was going to reverse Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that gave women the right to have an abortion. Now, in some states, women already had that right. In other states, they didn't. And, you know, it's a whole kind of thing here. But he said, you know, we're going to reverse these two decisions. So he hired this young lawyer, brought him into the Justice Department, said, here's your desk, here's your office. You got a year to figure this thing out. This lawyer did a deep dive into, into the founders, into Hamilton's writings, Jefferson's writings, the, the Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, the history of the Supreme Court, the history of judicial review throughout the years, and ended up writing a 29-page memo that was like a small nuclear bomb going off in the Reagan administration. And what he said, what this young lawyer said was, according to the Constitution, Congress can create exceptions to what the Supreme Court may do, what they may rule on. So all we have to do is have Congress pass a law saying that segregation of schools is, in fact, legal, and states may, in fact, pass laws forbidding abortion effectively overturning Brown and Roe. And then the last sentence of that law has to be something to the effect of, and this law may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. He said just write that into the law. It has been done in states over the years. It's called jurisdiction stripping or court stripping. And it's actually been done in some federal laws have been written with that clause in them, but they were never controversial things. So, you know, Tom Daschle, when he was Senate Majority Leader, got a language similar to this in one of the farm bills, according to Phyllis Schlafly. But, you know, it was never litigated. Now, the decision that the Reagan administration came down to after this young lawyer came up with this whole long memo and said, just do this, The decision that they made was that, you know, doing such a thing would create a, it would be a political bomb going off. And it would set up a battle between the legislative branch, which the Republicans controlled then, and the executive branch as their ally, and on one hand, and on the Supreme Court on the other. I mean, the Supreme Court could say, wait a minute, we're going to rule that your law is unconstitutional. Your law saying that we don't have the power to rule on something. And they just they felt like they didn't have a large enough majority in the House and Senate to take on the Supreme Court like that. And so it never went anywhere. It just sat in a drawer until I found it last year. That young lawyer, by the way, that Reagan hired, who came up with this idea about here's how you here's how you neuter the Supreme Court. His name was John Roberts. He is right now the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's the guy who went down to Florida in 2000 when he was clerking for, for Rehnquist, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and advised the Republicans, along with another young lawyer named Brett Kavanaugh, advised the Republicans on how to, con- how to construct, how to put together their arguments before the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore to stop the recount in Florida, which had it been completed, and we know this because you know the votes actually got counted a year later in, up in New York, where they, they took trail, you know, semi-trucks, took all the ballots up to New York and hand counted them, it took a whole year. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, and Gannett did it. And what they found was that Al Gore won Florida, period, by any measure. But in any case, you know, John Roberts, uh, you know, helped advise them on how to argue this thing before. I mean, you know, this, is, this guy, he's a serious political player. So there's a few ways that we can get the Supreme Court under control. There's a, you know, whether it's packing the court, whether it's, I mean, start with simple stuff, uh, judicial ethics. uh, Essentially create term limits saying, okay, you serve on the court for 15 years, and then after that, you go back to being a federal judge in in whatever circuit you came from. You go back to the Third Circuit or the Fifth Circuit or the D.C. Circuit. That's all completely constitutional, easily done. But there's this fundamental argument. Hang on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This fundamental argument, do we want to continue to live in a constitutional monarchy or do we want to go back to being a, a democratic republic? Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's one 888 O gold let's see here uh rhoda in portland michigan hey rhoda what's up
0: hi tom good afternoon good afternoon i have an answer to the question what to do with a supreme court that's out of control okay hold a nationwide referendum on major issues we the people will vote for or against major issues for example bans on on assault weapons women's issues And the like. In that way, we the people will have the pure control without ethical problems. We the people nationwide, the Greeks in other countries, why not here?
1: It's a great suggestion, Rhoda. And right now there's two problems with this idea. The first is some states, about half the states, have this built into their constitutions. And they were almost all states that came into the union after 1880 when the railroads and the steel companies and whatnot started corrupting politicians. And so this was a way of getting around a corrupt state legislature was have the people themselves vote on things. So most of your Western states, most of the states that became states after 1880, have written into their constitution the provision for this, and uh, but the United States Constitution doesn't. So there's no constitutional mechanism for what you're describing outside of the national referendum that we have every two years by voting for Congress or every four years by voting for president. The other problem is uh, one that I watched in real time, living here in Portland. We're in in Oregon. I li- you know I Louise and I live in Oregon, but we're right next door to Vancouver. Washington. It's just on the other side of the Columbia River. And it's one of the larger cities in Washington state. And so our local TV is both the Washington market and the Portland market. And Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state, Washington state has a referendum provision in their constitution like you're describing. And he proposed a carbon tax, very simple carbon tax, very small carbon tax. And the fossil fuel companies, Hired this guy who used to be the Republican Attorney General or Secretary of State. I think he was Secretary of State for Washington State. A Very nice-looking guy. He looks like Mr. Rogers. He talks like <laughs> Mr. Rogers. You know, really he was my- wearing. Yeah, he's wearing a sweater on television. You know, sweater vest, and he's. And I just want to share with you a few problems I have. We all we all applaud Governor Inslee's concern about the climate and carbon. But this is going to destroy the economics of our state. This is going to take thousands of dollars every year out of the pockets of working families. This is going to ruin our economy. There are better ways to do this than, with, when, you know, than this brute force method that Governor Inslee's try. And these were all lies, by the way. I mean just lying through their teeth and that ad ran i mean if you watch msnbc or cnn that ad ran two or three times an hour every hour all day every day for two weeks up to that election and sure enough a ballot provision that had eighty percent popular support when it was first offered ended up you know when the vote actually happened ended up losing the no vote was in the 60s as i recall high 50s are in the 60 percent so that's the other problem and what made that possible the supreme court In the the Buckley decision, the First National Bank decision, and the Citizens United decision, the Supreme Court basically said, you know, if fossil fuel companies want to run ads on TV and lie to people, that's protected First Amendment free speech. So that's the other problem with the referendums right now that we've got to solve. And it's a problem, again, that was created by the Supreme Court. But Rhoda, I love the way you're thinking. We need to teach
2: civics in school. We
0: need to teach civics in school.
1: Amen. We need to teach civics in school. Amen. Rhoda, thank you. Kathy in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Hey, Kathy, what's up?
3: Hey, Tom, how are you? Good.
1: Good. It's on your mind.
3: Yeah, I was really disturbed by the speech that Mike Pompeo gave over the weekend, and equally disturbed by the speech that Barr gave at Notre Dame, I think, the law school. Right. And there's, there's a theme running here, and it's interesting that they did this really within a couple of days each other. Mm. So i got a question for you. I'm really interested. Why do you think Bill Barr, who is pretty crooked, unscrupulous, but obviously knows the law, Why is he still carrying Trump's water? And why is Pompeo still carrying? Pompeo is not a stupid guy. He was number one at West Point in his class. Yeah. What do you think is behind this? Because I think I've talked to you before. You probably don't remember, but we've talked about this slow rolling crew mm-hmm. that I think is going on. Yeah. I hate to sound like a
1: conspiracy. Theorist, I think I think that they No, I get it. I, I think that their motivations are somewhat different. Mike Pompeo is an insanely ambitious, and apparently his wife is really, really kind of helped drives him. Uh, he's a very, very ambitious guy. And I think that he's hanging out with Trump because he thinks that's going to help him if he wants to run, for example, for the Senate, you know, from Kansas. I know Uh, he believes in the rapture, too, though. Yeah. And that's kind of frightening. Uh, But, uh, yeah, and Pompeo professes to be a fundamentalist Christian and may well be. But Barr, I think his motivation, I don't think he's trying to become president or anything else. Yeah, I don't think he has any Mm -hmm. interest in running for public office. I think that he actually believes in theocracy. I think he's an Opus Dei Catholic, I think, you know, I, I don't know that for a fact. I know that, you know, most of the members of the Supreme Court are now Opus Dei Catholics. And I think that, you know, which is this fundamentalist sect within Catholicism that you could say argues in favor of theocracy. You know, and, and then, mm-hmm. of course, you've got the family, and there's the brilliant uh, documentary, Jeff Charlotte's documentary, that you can watch on Netflix about the family. It's five parts, and it's yes. just breathtaking, it's mind-boggling. Cool. And so I think the bar is doing this because he actually does not believe in democracy. I think that's why he supported Reagan and Bush back in the day. Was because they were all about liberating the churches. Also, you know, the the, the guy who was the outreach director for the Reagan campaign was George W. Bush. You know, he, he brought the evangelicals into into the Reagan campaign when Reagan was, you know, a, he had been divorced and and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he was not their squeaky clean, you know, Christian. But again, they're right. using the Cyrus defense, so I think that's what's going
3: on. So, so I'm thinking that Barr is the perfect person in terms of the slow rolling cool because you know if the Supreme Court ruled and says, yeah, you got to do, you have to honor subpoenas, you've got to give over a word document. Who is going to enforce
1: this? That's correct. Everything goes through Bill Barr, and that's and that's why I think some of the people in Congress are are re-examining their the levels of their authority via the Capitol Police and things like that. Kathy, had to move along, but thank you for the call, Sharon in Los Gatos, uh, California. Hey, Sharon, what's up?
0: Theocracy? Oh, God, no. (laughs) Yeah. From my perspective, religion is truly what's the matter. It's not what the teachings are. It's how we handle the human beings. And I see so much that is so anti any religion that I've ever ventured into, and I'm and basically a Christian. I believe in Christ and His teaching, but I don't see any of it.
1: Yeah, I say I'm a Christian who would not be welcome in a lot of Christian churches.
0: <laughs> no, they'll throw me out yeah. <laughs> or, or Anyway, the thing is, is that this bunch that's in the uh, that's actually his horses that he rode in on. Mm. I mean, does it? to ever talk about the fact that Betty DeVos mm-hmm. is related to her brother is Eric Prince.
1: Right. We who started Blackwater, they, yeah.
0: Yes. And you know and they they're Calvinists to my understanding is. Yes. And my understanding of Calvinism is that they're the only ones that get to live. Everybody else right. should die.
1: I don't know enough about Calvinism to to speak to that but I you know I do know that kind of reinvented John Calvin theocracy or uh, theological argument is that, you know, we're all sinners, but God gives us clues as to who we should have as leading us, who is without sin, or who has less sin. And the way that God tells us that is because they're rich people, and therefore, you know, rich people should run the world. Betsy DeVos is a great example of that. Sharon, thanks a lot for the call. It's such a weird idea, and yet it is with or without the religious peace it's at the core of the republican argument for their own existence matthew in surrey virginia hey matthew what's up i'm very interested in your book on the supreme court i don't think many americans know exactly the special laws that are given to supreme court justices. and i think
0: I mean, if you want to see real reform in this country not only regarding term limits to supreme court justices, but term limits in general is one of the main basic ways you to reform this country as a whole and seeing this uh, Thing going on with this inquisition with Trump and Adam Schiff, it kind of reminds me. I've been through the federal process myself, went to federal trial, and the grand jury process to me is what I'm seeing. If you actually knew how a grand jury works, it's very, very one-sided. And
1: I just wanted your yeah. It's all about it's all about coming up with coming up with a prosecution, and that's the thing. I mean, Trump is saying, "Oh, I can't represent myself, and I can't see the witnesses against me, and all this kind of stuff." Well, that's how grand juries work as ted lou tweeted to trump to one of trump's whiny complaints ted Liu tweets back you'll have plenty of opportunity to have your side of the story presented at your trial that'll happen in the senate but there'll be a trial and trump can present all his evidence and he can refute all the arguments and accusations that's what it's for so just but no, but hang on said, matthew it's, meantime, it's it's, it's coming a hearing. well most of them are as closed hearings actually you know just chill out we'll get there lynn in waynesboro virginia lynn you're on the air
2: I wanted to talk to you briefly about the theocracy issue. I heard the comments from Bill Ball, and it was very reminiscent of the secular humanism issue that, I guess, back in probably late 70s or the 80s when...
1: well when politicians started raving about it it was the 1980s and it was the reagan the reaganistas
2: and i remember that well but it just sort of clicked for me you know talking about the industry and certainly many of them are power hungry and greedy but there's some who are zealots and i think you know they're the scarier ones bill barr confused me and i i will admit that i i had him tagged wrong like a lot of other people in the beginning but because he's going back to the 80s and, and that whole thing, you know, it's almost like he's trying to pick up—he he saw an opening to come in right. and pick up where they left off. But I do think that disconnect with people questioning how could Christians support him, that for some people like Barr, I wonder if it's just that Trump is just so lax. I mean, certainly the specifics, like the tax issue you and know, all that, that's one thing, but he's just so lax and— selfish
1: they've got a rationale around this they've got this story that has been built you know that there was this king cyrus who was not a Jew, but he helped the Jews when they were being persecuted, and therefore he was blessed by God and a wonderful guy and all this stuff, even though he was an, an awful, evil SOB, you know, who wasn't faithful to his wife or his family or his country or anything. But he helped out the Jews. And that you know, And so, you know, the Christians are adopting that, and they're saying, okay, just, you know, just like Cyrus helped the Jewish people back in the day, Trump is gonna help mm-hmm. the Christian people right now. He's our King Cyrus. And, you know, it's, it's a bizarre, kind of pathetic attempt to to accommodate this sociopathy, this, this pathological behavior that we're seeing on the part of this guy. Lynn, thank you for the call, and, which is actually quite dangerous behavior as well. I mean, you know, he just set up what might be the flashpoint that could conceivably lead to World War III in the Middle East. This is not good stuff. Louise and I have been using CBD oil for a while now and love it. Uh, we've been using New Leaf Naturals CBD oil principally. Uh, CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids, but don't want to get high. And uh, you don't get high with CBD, and it's also non-toxic, but it does have potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. And New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives grown in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp, and so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. It's N-U-LeafNaturals.com. Save 30% off and get free shipping in the US when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NuLeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place newleafnaturals.com, n-u-leafnaturals.com, code Tom, newleafnaturals.com. You know, ever since uh, Trump basically betrayed the Kurds and said to the president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, sir, yes, sir, whatever you want, sir, just don't take away my Trump Tower or my 119 other investments in your country. Apparently, I'm speculating here, but I can't figure out why else Donald Trump would sell out the Kurds and the Christians in northern Syria? Why would he hand them over to be slaughtered? Why is it acceptable to him right now that videotapes of people being beheaded are coming out of northern Syria? And that these are are Turkish troops and Turkish sympathizers who are doing the beheadings of Kurdish people who have, and Christians who have fought alongside us or who we advised actually. They fought instead of us, you know, 10 to 15,000 of them died on the battlefield against ISIS. And ISIS is now free and flying their flag in Syria. Well, anyhow, I've been saying from the beginning that w- there's one day that may come that would be a real danger point. Syria, keep in mind, Russia has a huge military base in Syria. Major, uh, You know, they're, they're a naval base. And it's the basis of that relationship between Putin and Assad, between Russia and Syria. So Russia has a significant, in their opinion, a significant security interest in the whole country of Syria and in its stability. It would be sort of like the way that we would feel about Qatar if it was being you know, attacked by Iran, for example, or something like that. So they have a security interest there. And Turkey is part of NATO, which Russia views as created simply to contain Russia, which is actually the fact and so they view NATO with a jaundiced eye. And of course, you know when Gorbachev dissolved the Soviet Union, the deal he made with George Herbert Walker Bush, that, Bo, you know, that Bush promised to was that America would never put NATO on the border of Russia. And uh, so here you've got you know the, the Russian-controlled Syria and NATO ally Turkey and and you know turkey has extended now into this uh, 30 mile apparently although people say it's it's going as far as 50 miles zone south of the turkish syrian border and what i said a couple of days ago was when the turkish troops get far enough south they're going to encounter the russian troops going from the south to the north and when they encounter each other that's nato against russia and be very very careful we're part of nato So if a NATO nation is under attack, we have to respond. And Syria and Russia and Iran have a similar agreement. And so, I mean, you know, if Syria is under attack, Russia, you know, may have to respond. This is how World War I happened. Okay, so that's the background. And here's where where I was going with all this. This article in the Financial Times, ft.com. It's by Henry Foy in Moscow, Laura Patel in Ankara, and uh, Chloe Cornish in Beirut. The headline, Russia calls Turkey's invasion of North Syria, quote, unacceptable. And I'll just read to you the first couple of sentences. Russia deployed troops in northeastern Syria. So here we go. Russia deployed troops in northeastern Syria to help reassert control over the territory in the wake of Turkey's military onslaught against Kurdish forces. Russia labeled Ankara's you know Ankara being the capital of Turkey basically so this is true. Russia labeled Turkey's incursion quote unacceptable Alexander Levrentiev president Vladimir Putin's special envoy for Syria said that Ankara's offensive had not been agreed to with Russia despite the Kremlin having emerged as the most influential foreign power in Syria so Russia wins the most in this thing but they're saying no this is not what we wanted In the harshest comments, back to the Financial Times, in the harshest comments yet from a Russian official, Mr. Lavrentiev said that Moscow, quote, has always believed that any military operation in Syrian territory is unacceptable. Here we are, the border between Turkey and Syria. He said that border, quote, should be ensured by way of deploying government forces along the entire border. In other words, he wants Assad to put his soldiers there to stop the Turks. This could be really, really really dangerous. Anyhow, to your calls. Thomas in New York City. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind?
3: Oh, Tom, how you doing? Good. Listen, I love your show, man, but uh, I just wanted to give you my theory on the reason why Trump is doing what he's doing now. Okay. My reason is I believe he know he's going down and he want to take the whole world with him. That's the reason he's doing what he's doing. That's and the thing that scares me the most, Tom that he's taking like... my car, Yeah. And uh, you're good. Okay,
1: Thank you, Thomas. I'm going to hang up now. Okay, Thanks thanks a lot, Thomas. Good to to talk with you. That's my biggest fear. And I've uh, alluded to it. I refer to that speech I gave in Minneapolis last year where I just came right out and said it. And I'll say it right now. My biggest fear is that Donald Trump may have a little Jim Jones in him. And if he decides that if he concludes that he and his crime family are going to go down He may be willing to take the entire world with him. He's obviously willing to take the United States with him. He's taking apart the United States right now. I mean, the damage that he is doing to this country. But will he take down the entire world? Is he willing to start a nuclear war? It's obvious he's willing to do things like what he did with Syria that could lead to a nuclear war without asking the advice of his military, without asking the advice of the Pentagon, without asking the advice of the State Department just doing what foreign dictators tell him to do. That's, that's scary as hell. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that imminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use, has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use – And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also. Whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves, from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, "quote about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband And more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada. And 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. End quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities, but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in Parts 1 and 2, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the President, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review? And how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion? And how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the Court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the President with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment, other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Just trying to keep up with what's going on in the news. Mick Mulvaney, he just came out and said, yeah, yeah, there was a quid pro quo. We said to Ukraine, you're not going to get your military stuff unless you find some dirt on Joe Biden. And that happens all the time. That's politics. Get over it. That's essentially what Mick Mulvaney said, the uh, chief of staff to Donald Trump, the acting chief of staff, acting head of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB. The big question had always been, okay, who was it who pulled the trigger? Who was it who said, no, we're not going to send this money or the military weaponry that is associated with the money? We're not going to send that. We're not going to send that to Ukraine. And turns out it was Mick Mulvaney. He was the bag man. And he's on TV defending himself with a, yeah, you don't like it? Stuff it, try and do something about it, buddy. And that's essentially what Mick Mulvaney was saying. Meanwhile, Mike Pence goes over to Turkey to grovel at the feet of Mr. Erdogan, who has a photo op with Pence and him and himself. And traditionally, when a head of state meets another head of state, you have the flags of both countries, you know, hang, you know hanging on the wall or on stands behind them. There were two Turkish flags, one behind Erdogan and one behind Pence no American flag, a little tiny one down you know on the table, but no no real actual American flag, which is a absolute right in your face insult. And then Trump tweets out that he is declaring victory in a war that he started. That is Turkey coming in and taking taking out the Kurds basically, slaughtering the Kurds. You have literally, you know, murder and rape and pillaging going on in some of these villages by Turkish forces and people aligned with the Turkish forces. Oh, no, we've got it. we we've victorious in the war. We only let a few thousand ISIS guys go. And and now uh, there's a ceasefire. And Turkey's foreign minister replies going, no, there's not a ceasefire. It's a pause for a couple days so that the Kurds can run before we finish this job and take all this territory. And then Trump yesterday says, oh yeah, Kurds, they're they're as bad terrorists as ISIS, which of course is the talking point from Turkey, from Erdogan. So the question in my mind, and I've been asking this on the air every day this week, I mean, ever since Sunday when Trump pulled the plug on our allies, the Kurds, is why? Why did Trump do what Turkey wanted him to do? Why did he say, sir, yes, may I have another sir? Why did, he, why did he grovel at the feet of a dictator of a small country, Erdogan in Turkey? Is it because he's got a Trump Tower there? Is it because he's invested in 119 businesses in Turkey? Is it because, you know, Erdogan is buying missile systems now from Russia and President Putin called up Trump and said, hey, get with the program? I mean, what's going on here? Why did he do this? That question is in my opinion not being asked enough, and there's certainly in unless you know something I do as far as I can tell there is no answer to that question right at this moment. I'm very concerned about that. Karen in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hey Karen, what's up? Hi Tom. I just
0: wanted to uh tell you I use this website, it's called Mm vote.org, which is really simple, and on there, you can check your registration, register to vote, get an absentee ballot, they give you a number for an election protection hotline, Mm -hmm. and it's just vote.org, and I live across the street from a college, and I went over with little pieces of paper, vote.org, I got 27 kids to register to vote.
1: Yeah. I, I'm looking at the website right now. It looks like uh, looks like a pretty cool uh, website. Premiumtoolshopvoc.org. So they've got they've got a business model that's that's not uh, that's not uh, toxic. <laughs> it looks like. So no, it's very yeah. it's very
0: simple and it's very easy to use. I I check my registration all the time, Mm -hmm. and they also give you um, a place where you can put your cell phone number if you want to get text messages reminding you election days are coming up. You know, make sure you check your voter registration. So, I, you can live anywhere in the country, put in your information and
1: you can check your voter registration. That's great. Thank you for that, Karen. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. David in Shelton, Washington, uh, listening to KMAS. David, we have less than a half a minute. What's, you had a quick one, you, a quick question?
2: Tom, could these guys, would it open up any new powers that these guys were all prosecuted, Kavanaugh and Trump and everybody, under the RICO Act?
1: The problem is that the Office of Legal Counsel, the, the Office of the Attorney General of the United States, decided during the Nixon era and then reaffirmed during the Clinton era, two presidents who were you know, in the process of being impeached, that you can't prosecute a sitting president because what he's doing is so important and he's so busy. Now we've got a, president, a sitting president who's playing golf all the time, but still they they won't prosecute. So I, David I would love to see a RICO prosecution, but it's not going to happen until he leaves office. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, don't forget, democracy doesn't happen accidentally. It's something you got to get out there, get active, and wake people up. Tell people about our program and other programs. Get out there, get active. Tag your edge. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.